Welcome back to another episode of Independent Thought. I am your host, Desmond Price. Thank you for all of the people who are turning in, turning in, tuning in to this episode of Independent Thought today. I want to welcome any new listeners who are listening for the first time and welcome back to all of my subscribers. Thank you for hitting that subscribe button. And if you haven't already, please go ahead and turn on the little notification bell so that you do not miss any episodes. I want to apologize firstly for this late episode. I was having some issues with the podcast over the weekend. Normally episodes drop on Monday. They didn't this week. I hope no one's too upset about that. Anyway, it was hard for me to figure out exactly what the topic was going to be for this week. I was having some issues kind of bouncing back and forth, but I did know that I wanted to address 9-11 in some way, shape or form. It has been 20 years since those attacks happened on September 11th in 2001. I knew I wanted to do some type of episode around it. I originally thought about doing something centered around the Patriot Act. I still might do an episode around the Patriot Act, but I just wanted to touch on something that I could not get my mind off of in regards to 9-11, because when it comes to 9-11, there's a lot of different angles you can take with it. You can take some of the good that came out of 9-11, which I know sounds you know, pretty terrible to say, but you know, I'm thinking about what happened in the aftermath when it talks about, when we talk about the community that people uh, sensed around the country as they became united, uh, as partisanship kind of went to the wayside, as people became very patriotic for, various, for a small amount of time afterwards, as the country seemed to be united in our common just need to be safe, to be secure, to see what happened in New York on that day and also in at the Pentagon. It, it just it sparked something in the country that a lot of people have talked about since then that they feel like we need more of, which is just this sense of just, I guess, overall community amongst Americans. But with all that being said, there's a lot of bad things that came after 9-11. 9-11 was used as as a pretense to enact many things in our country, including the Patriot Act, expanding the size of our government under the Bush administration, the size of our federal government tripled, military budget ballooned to a height that it had never, that it's never come down from. I think currently the last estimate I saw was that we were spending $780 billion every single year on our military or on our defense department as a whole, rather. We spent $2 trillion in our war in Afghanistan, just particularly. And so lots of money has been spent on what some are calling a wasted endeavor. And I don't want to forget whatsoever Guantanamo Bay and all the people who were detained without any due process and tortured subsequently while they were being held without due process, some of who were never even charged as being terrorists. They were just suspected, and we were never told why they were suspected. But I want to talk about drone strikes, 
because that is something that I feel as though needs more, more of a conversation around. So let's talk a little bit about drone strikes that we've carried out, not just, you know, in Afghanistan, but throughout the Middle East. Because when I say the word drone strikes and I say drone strikes that America has, has carried out, you're probably thinking of countries like Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria. Those are probably the countries that come to your mind, countries that we've had active conflicts in. But these aren't the only countries that we've been having drone strikes in, unfortunately. There's also been drone strikes in countries like Somalia, Yemen, and Pakistan, countries that we had no active conflicts in, yet we were still sending drones into those countries to strike targets that we deemed were a threat. And before I go any further, I forgot to do this at the top of the episode, but before we get too any farther, some of the sources I have for today's episode include uh, NBC, Last Week Tonight, The New York Times, US News, and Breaking Points. Oh, and the Atlantic. Almost forgot about the Atlantic. Okay, so getting back into this a little bit. It was said, and again, this is actually from years ago, under the Obama administration, it was said that there were certain rules for drone strikes. Attorney General Eric Holder, under the Obama administration, said that even though we carried out these drone strikes at an increasingly high rate, the Obama administration, I mean, deployed I think eight times more drone strikes than the Bush administration did. But they said that there were rules as far as using these drone strikes were concerned. For instance, one of the rules said that the target must be an imminent threat, that capture was not feasible, and that they were confident that they were in no way, shape, or form violating international law. And so I want to just quickly address some of these points Because it was later found out that even though Attorney General Holder said that a target must be an imminent threat for us to issue a drone strike, we later found out that apparently uh, imminent threat does not require the U.S. to have clear evidence that a specific attack on a U.S. person or interest will actually take place in the immediate future. So imagine that for a second. Imagine that we're calling something an imminent threat but then later saying, well, that doesn't actually mean that they're going to threaten anyone or anytime soon, if at all. But we're just going to call it an imminent threat so that we have the pretense to said strike this person or persons. There are so many different things wrong with that. I'm, I'm going to try to contain myself for a second here. I'm going to save a lot of my opinion for the end here. But it, it was it's unconscionable to me that we don't really have to declare if someone's actually a threat or not to kill them. I mean, you know, we can say we can use words like attack or strike or whatever the case it may be, but we're talking about murder here. So let's just call it what it is. And not only that, but these people didn't even have to be militants. Now, according to Scott Shane of the New York Times, the CIA classified all able-bodied males of a certain age to be militants. And that was only unless they had hard evidence to prove that they were innocent. Not that they were guilty, but that they were innocent. So the CIA said, hey, unless we can prove these guys aren't terrorists, they are terrorists. And so, yes, you can kill them. Have at it. 
Does anyone see anything wrong with that? I'm going to stop this episode for a second, take a quick, quick little pause break, stop and think about that for a second, that we just gave ourselves a license to kill innocent people because we felt like it. Okay. Not only that, but we didn't know who we were killing sometimes. Sometimes we would send out drone strikes. We would not know who we were attacking. And not only that, but after we killed people, we did not always know how many people died. Sometimes when they would show the logs of the death tolls from these drone strikes attacks, they would have figures like 17 to 20 or between 20 and 30. Or, or the, the more accurate figure is we don't really know because we didn't bother to count. We just, we just kind of, we, we think it's this many. So we're not really sure. And that's going to come into play later as I go into another stat that I want to talk about. But this, this wasn't just like a, a one-off thing. This wasn't just under one presidency. This is kind of how drone strikes were operating, you know, for, for the entire time that we were using them over in the Middle East. In fact, our very first drone strike in 2002 was on a target who we believed to be bin Laden. And the reasoning for that was, quote unquote, because of his height. So again, we didn't know who we were attacking, but because of his height, we thought we were attacking bin Laden only to find out it was actually just an innocent civilian who was just happening to be collecting scrap metal. That was that person's crime, and we killed them. Nothing more, nothing less. And did the media report on that? No, they certainly did not. So on top of all that, what we were seeing in our country for the longest time was just this unchecked amounts of authority when it came to drone strikes. And this was concerning to a lot of people, including... Rosa Brooks, who's a former advisor to the Defense Department, she had some thoughts when she was giving some testimony to Congress. Here's a clip of what she had to say. Right now, we have the executive branch making a claim that it has the right to kill anyone anywhere on Earth at any time uh, for secret reasons based on secret evidence in a secret process undertaken by unidentified officials. That frightens me. Truthfully, it, it should frighten us all. I mean, how could it not, right? You, you would assume anyway. And so in recent years, the Pentagon has confirmed, actually, let me, not, let, me, let me say this a little more directly. This year, in 2021, the Pentagon confirmed that the Biden administration had added new restrictions to, to drone strikes so that there was, I guess, a little more of a, of a vetting process before we were just killing however we saw fit. And so let's fast forward to the event that happened more recently and to the reason why I'm bringing this up now. As most of you know, during our withdrawal from Afghanistan, there was an attack on the airport in Kabul in Afghanistan. Now, during this attack, 60 Afghans and 13 U.S. troops were killed. Now, a lot of people were really upset about this happening. And why shouldn't they be? The loss of life is an incredibly upsetting thing, especially for the families involved. You know, it, it seemed like it was a very preventable thing. A lot of people were talking about Biden's plans as far as the withdrawal was concerned, how he could let this happen. And so in retaliation for this attack, we decided to send out an airstrike. 
against a member, a person that we were calling a member of ISIS K. Now, this drone strike happened very shortly after the attack on the Kabul airport. I believe it was the very next day. We were told that the ISIS K member was in fact killed and that no one else died. That was the official report that we were given from the Biden administration. Now, Evan Hill, who is a reporter for the New York Times, and I got to say, definitely check this person out because when I was doing research for this episode, I came across this person's reporting and they did a phenomenal job. They, they truly did. I have a link to their article in the description of this episode. Stop what you're doing after this episode's over. Go into the description, check out this person's link. Highly recommend it. But Evan Hill, a reporter for the New York Times, decided that they were going to do some investigating into this alleged ISIS-K member who we took out with the drone strike. Because there were some reports that some civilians happened to be killed in the attack, even though originally we said that only the ISIS-K member was in fact killed in this drone strike that we did. And we came to find out through Evan Hill's reporting that not only were there civilians that were killed, but it seems as though the person that we had, that we targeted with this drone strike was not in fact at all a member of ISIS-K. According to this reporting, this person was a civilian who was working at a local aid office who specialed in malnutrition for an agency that he worked at in Afghanistan that actually was partnered with a U.S. company. This was actually a person who was planning on coming here as an Afghan refugee, as one of the evacuees. So this person was actually followed by one of our drones for about eight hours the day of the strike. And our drone followed this person from location to location before it actually initiated the attack. And after following said person for eight hours, it waited until this person went home. And then as this person was pulling their car into their driveway and their family came out to meet them, a bunch of babies, literally just very small children came out to meet this person like in the courtyard as they were coming home from work. That is the moment that we chose to have our drone attack this person and the drone killed everyone everyone the person all of his children and his extended family all innocent civilians dead now the thing i really want to hammer home here is that to to verify this evan hill went to afghanistan this reporter went to afghanistan spoke with the family and through watching security footage that he could obtain, he was able to see that this person was not, in fact, in any way, shape, or form, a member of ISIS. He was just a regular guy, just distributing food, water, and supplies to needy people in and around Kabul. 
And now the government has since admitted to the New York Times that they did not know who this guy was, even though they tracked him all throughout that day. And I honestly, I can't even, I can't even, I can't even wrap my head around this. Let me give you some extra stats that makes this completely unbearable. We spend, and I, I bullshit you not, we spend $80 billion a year on our intelligence departments. $80 billion a year. That's how much money we spend on our intelligence departments. And for those of you who listened to one of my previous episodes, that would fix all of the issues for all the lead pipes that we have in our country two times over if we put the money for one year for these intelligence agencies into fixing our lead pipes. But I'm going to get off that subject for today. That is the number we pay to the CIA, the NSA, Department of Homeland Security, the NRO, all, all of these, all these entities. We give them that much money every single year. And they were outworked by one reporter for the New York Times who decided to fly to Afghanistan and was able to obtain more information in probably a day or two than our sophisticated intelligence agencies. They picked this person out and committed a drone strike against an innocent civilian. And they somehow just did not know after tracking this person for eight hours that this person was not a member of ISIS. So one of two things is true here. Either we are that incompetent that we couldn't figure out that we had the wrong target, that that wasn't the person who carried out the attack on the airport, or we didn't care and we just wanted to have someone die so that we can say that we caught the person who, who made the attack on the airport. I don't know which one it is, but either way, it's fucking horrendous, truly. And so let me go back to what Eric Holder said, the attorney general under the Obama administration. He said that we carry out drone strikes if someone's an imminent threat, capture is not feasible, and we're not violating international law. So we already went over the fact that what we think of as an imminent threat isn't actually an imminent threat. So we followed this person around for eight hours, figured out that we could have easily have seen this person was just distributing aid. We probably knew, or at least we couldn't confirm that this person was a member of ISIS. It seemed pretty feasible if you're following this person around for eight hours that you could have captured them. And so the only question is, well, did you violate international law? Well, we did not know for sure that this person was a member of ISIS. We just didn't know that. And under international humanitarian law, it says that intentional acts on intentional attacks on civilians or attacks that do not distinguish between military targets and civilians are prohibited under all circumstances, also known as a war crime. And so what is one of the what is the last thing that we did in Afghanistan before leaving? We committed another war crime. And by another, I mean that that's not the first time that we've killed civilians. Obviously. You know, according to US News, we've killed approximately 360,000 civilians across the Middle East over the last two decades. Now, I want you to all think about some of the anger and just resentment 
and just just pure like sadness that people here in America were feeling for the 13 dead service members who died at the airport in Kabul just a few weeks ago. People were calling for Biden's impeachment. They were talking about how could he mess this up? They were saying that, you know, he should resign immediately because 13 people died on his watch. Now take that same idea and, and just think for a second that we've killed 360,000 civilians, at least. At least. And that's just estimates that we, can, that we can generate. We don't actually know the real number because we'd ever tracked the real number. We don't know how many people we've killed over in the Middle East. And so when I think about the legacy of our time in the Middle East, when I think about everything that's happened after 9-11, again, we could talk about the Patriot Act. We could talk about our expanded government. We could talk about how much money we spend on the Department of Defense how they cannot be audited, how the Pentagon does not even have to disclose how they're spending the money. We could talk about the fact that in the name of freedom, we are actually have taken freedoms away from people. We could talk about Guantanamo Bay. We could talk about torture. There are a lot of things that have happened in the name of 9-11 that we've done since 9-11. But one of the things that I will never forgive this country for is our drone strike policy. And truthfully, I think the first time this was brought to my attention was by John Oliver when he did his piece on this back in 2014. And, and I referenced that a little bit during this piece that I made here. I went back and rewatched that. I recommend that you guys do as well. I'll have the link for that video in this description. But that listening to that video, I, I, it kind of scarred me. I'll, I'll never get over it. Just hearing the cavalierness of people talking about these drone strikes, as if these people's lives didn't matter. It, it just feels like a true hypocrisy of our mission. We went over to the Middle East to get retribution for, the, for acts of terrorism that were committed against America. And in doing so, we've committed a much higher scale of terrorism on the people of that region, truthfully. The definition of terrorism is the unlawful use of violence, especially against civilians, in the pursuit of political aims. And so in order to protect ourselves from terrorism, we, in fact, in a lot of ways, can be characterized as now being the terrorists. And that is a stain on our country. It's a stain on our legacy as a nation. I mean, truthfully, I don't know how else to phrase it. I mean, again and again and again, you know, we took civilian lives without really any, without any real thought about it and without a whole lot of care. The media has been going wild talking about Afghanistan for the last few weeks, for the last month and a half as we were getting ready, ready to withdraw, saying, how dare we withdraw from Afghanistan? What are we going to do if we leave there? Think about all the people who won't be safe. You know, think about the women, how they're going to be subjected to the Taliban. I feel for the women who are going to be subjected to the Taliban's rule. And I see the articles about it every single day, every single day. But you know the articles I did not see? The articles I did not see were all the innocent lives that we have killed 
every single year since we've been in that region. There were no headlines about that. There were no headlines talking about all the people that we left in unmarked graves and all the people who will never see their families again. We didn't talk about the fact that, you know, ISIS, I mean, did not exist before we went over into the Middle East. Most historians agree that ISIS sprouted out of Iraq after we invaded the country back in 2003. Maybe we've created more terrorism than we actually solved by being in Afghanistan. Maybe that is really our legacy, that we went over there to solve a problem and we actually amplified it. And so that is really my take on this issue. I know that some people don't feel the same way. They think that, well, you know, like, well, you know, they live over in Afghanistan, so this is their fault or some, some bullshit. Like, I don't even know. I don't understand it. I don't understand people who are overly callous about this, or they don't seem to care about the, the Afghan lives or the Iraqi lives that were lost during our wars over there. Those are people just like us. Their lives are now extinguished because we didn't try hard enough to distinguish between civilians and actual terrorists. And I'd say we have to live with that, but nobody seems to care. And that's why I'm talking about it today. So with that being said, we're going to take a quick break now. And when we come back, we're going to have our guest for this week. Stay tuned. Betty's Divine is a locally owned boutique on the magnificent hip strip in downtown Missoula, Montana, that has been a fixture in the Mountain West since 2005. We have a fondness for vintage-inspired clothing, shoes, and accessories for humans, as well as the real deal found in our vintage department, Divine Trash. Betty's Divine presents a snapshot of Northwest styles with an emphasis on street, skate, surf, and rock and roll culture, as well as Americana classics. Alongside a radical selection of clothing, Betty's Divine offers a damn fine array of shoes, jewelry, records, and accessories to satisfy any taste, whatever your age or vibe. You can count on us to prioritize financial, social, and environmental responsibility without sacrificing the look. Visitors enjoy a lovely atmosphere, dreamy tunes, and the best customer service in the West. And you can shop us online at bettysdivine.com. Hey, Indie Thought listeners. Has this past year helped you rediscover your creative and crafty side? Well, then you're going to love our sponsor for today's episode. Bathing Beauties Beads is a full-service bead shop in the heart of downtown Missoula. Whether it's seed beads, semi-precious stones, vintage beads, or just materials to make a project, they have something for every person and every price range. Not from Missoula? Don't worry. They have an extensive online store and they will ship directly to you. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, they'll welcome you and help you make your next project a reality. You can find them online at Bathing Beauties Beads on Instagram and Facebook or at bathingbeautiesbeads.com. And don't forget to use offer code INDEPENDENTTHOUGHT at checkout to save 15% on your order.
Welcome back from the break, everyone. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Independent Thought. My guest for this week is Tom, the host of the Winner Gets Nothing podcast. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, man. Really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Glad to be here. I found this guy a few months back, I believe on Twitter, and have checked out your podcast several times now, currently subscribed on CastBox. You've actually had me on your podcast a couple of times. For those of you who I maybe I forgot to mention or didn't mention it enough times, definitely go back and check out a couple episodes I did with this guy on his podcast. But, you know, customarily, whenever I have a fellow podcaster come on, the first thing we have to do is talk about your podcast. And so, as always, I want to ask you, what was the motivation behind starting Winner Gets Nothing? Like, tell, tell us a little bit of what it's about. Um. Truthfully, it kind of got started for me. Uh, I had a friend who just stepped in. We all kind of wanted to do it. There was no real concept behind it. We just sounded like fun. And uh, finally, I got one of my friends who didn't really listen to podcasts into it. He got drunk. And uh, at the club, he walks up to me and says, I just bought the mics. We're doing a pod. And uh, from there, I mean, kind of the inspiration for our direction has just kind of been a focus on uh, making a place uh, where it's just, uh, it's just a fun environment. We're making jokes, not taking things too seriously, just talking about the way the world is, but really uh, offering a safe place for ideas and stuff. And that's uh, more led me into my second podcast, the one that you're on. Uh, that's Trash Talks underneath the same feed. You can find it on the same place. But that subsection is where I get other people that I, I don't really, um, well, just not... I just, I don't know, just other views and stuff. And I just get people to come on and express themselves. And I've had anyone from uh, extreme authoritarian left people to um, libertarian right people. I don't know. Just like I try to, it's just a variety of perspectives and it doesn't need to be political. Um, sometimes we just, I had a guy on, we just talked about music. I mean, it's, it's just kind of anything goes, but I mean, really the inspiration is creating a zone where it's safe to express ideas and uh, get other people to do that with us. Right, and right. comedy, and, and so you would base like what? What would you say the theme of it is? Like, if someone's coming to your podcast, what mm -hmm. should they or could they expect from you when they listen to an episode of Winner Gets Nothing or Trash Talks? Well, Trash Talks is more so what I just described right there. You're going to just get a variety of opinions, just from all walks of life. I'm willing to have anyone on. If you want to talk to me, hit me up. I'm on Twitter at WGN Podcast. And uh, yeah, that's that. But the, the regular show, it kind of just took on a life of its own. We just went on there and said anything. And then eventually we needed topics. And so then it just became kind of a very loose news show. And when I say loose news, I don't, don't come to us for the facts. We read a headline and we make jokes. Like it's just kind of having fun and just looking at the world and almost a personal diary of the nonsense that goes on around us, you know? Right, right. And as I've told some of you in my audience before, and this kind of like goes back to some of the things I was saying at the beginning of my last season. I wanted to make an effort to bring on other people, other voices who were a little bit different politically than my own. You know, we have a lot of more left-leaning conversations on this podcast. And Tom definitely is on the other side of the political spectrum as far as his views on our country and politics, so on and so forth. So I kind of wanted to bring you on to talk about maybe like the other side of the perspective when it comes to some of these issues. But before we get into specifics, the first thing I wanted to ask you is, would you call yourself like a libertarian? And tell me like the distinctions about, I guess, what a libertarian is and where you kind of fall into this category. 
Um, if I'm talking to a absolute normie, uh, yes, I'd call myself libertarian just to uh, put myself in a box for uh, their, I don't want to bruise their sensibilities. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I really know libertarian wouldn't be a, a great thing. Am I going to vote for the libertarian party? Probably just because I'd like to bolster a third party in this country. And um, as between the green and the, the libertarian and uh, one's closer to the 5% marker. So I'd go with them and I don't even really know what the green's about. I didn't look into him enough. Uh, that yeah. guy, Howie, had a weird mustache. Um, <laughs> last candidate. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, so I just, I, I'd, uh, yeah, just bolstering a third party. But um, no, I, I wouldn't really, like, describe myself as, as libertarian. I, I would probably say something more. Uh, anarchist is a fun word, but I also don't like these labels because the thing is you say you're one thing oh especially say you're libertarian you are not a real libertarian how dare you you'll, you'll get hit with all of it like that's what libertarians do they just it's just a bunch of different ideas that are anti-authority and we just sit in one room and just just nin, 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 at each other it's just it's nonsense it's just nitpicky but no i'd, I'd probably lean more towards like anarchism uh, egoism's interesting me lately uh i mean anarcho-mutualism i don't know there's, there's all these different ideas and uh you probably got to go like read five Wikipedia pages to pick up on any of those terms. But um, really, I'm just, I'm just kind of anti-authority and they seem like the most anti-authority party there is. Like I'm, right. Uh, yeah. Right. And so I, I think that's kind of the distinction that I wanted you to, I guess, more or less paint for the people who are listening here is, yeah. would you say, if you were talking to somebody on the left who maybe is a little unfamiliar with the Libertarian Party because they're not exactly talked about thoroughly in the mainstream how would you describe it to somebody who's unfamiliar with that ideology well i think really what it comes down to is how much you want the state imposing in your life like how much do you think the government should have the ability to come and make decisions for you and um anybody who's on board with as little as possible i'm on their side so when you specifically say um talking to people on the left, I don't think that's a fair description of libertarianism because it's a top to bottom thing, not a left to right thing. Okay. It's, it's uh, if you look, you know, just political compass terms, I mean, which that thing's useless. Everybody knows the interdimensional political hypercube is a much more better means of plotting your play, place in the political <laughs> spectrum. But um, yeah, really, no, it's a top to bottom thing. And libertarianism actually, it, it was originated as a left wing movement. Additionally, anarchism did too. Um, right wingers just take it, tweak it, and you know, make it ours, like like they do with everything. But um, yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's it's. I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's 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 excluding leftists, but how I'd explain it to someone who's on the left, um, yeah, just if you'd like a smaller government or less government influence in your life, you're probably somewhat libertarian. Okay, okay, and you know, I think a lot of the confusion probably stems from the fact that in some ways that seems as though that's the position of the current Republican Party. But you've told me in the past that you don't believe that the Republican Party and the Libertarian Party are even, even kind of related, or maybe they're just not related enough. Like, tell me in your words, like, what is the distinction between the Republicans and the, and the Libertarians? I, okay, so um, I don't understand what's anti-authority about worshiping police. I don't understand what's anti-authority about worshiping your president. I don't understand what's anti-authority about telling what people can do with their bodies. I don't understand what's 
like it's th there really is no choice. There's a right answer in the Republican Party, and they want to tell you what to do. Now, authoritarian left wingers want the same damn thing, and that's why I really I call them republicrats. I view Democrats and Republicans as more similar than you'd view, or maybe you view Republicans and Libertarians. I think de establishment Democrats and establishment Republicans have way more in common than, I mean anti-authoritarian left and right. Like, I, I think really that's the core issue of what it comes down to for me. And that's why libertarians, not the best description, it's anti-authoritarian in whatever form that is to you. Just, I, I don't like the idea that, that uh, we can be dictated by just uh, just enough people saying, we don't, we don't like the way you are. I mean, just pick, pick any subject, like whichever one you want, where another group of people gets to decide things for you. I, I don't like that situation. I want to leave people more open to their individual choices. You know? Speaking of individual choices, I wanted to kind of pick your thoughts on, uh, I guess it's, I guess individual choices might not be the right way to phrase this, but you know, kind of like, let's focus on some like policy positions in particular. Yeah. You've told me in the past that you think that the minimum wage should be abolished. Yes. Now, you and I do not agree on this subject, but I'm going to open the floor to you first. And I would like you to tell me why you believe that the minimum wage should be abolished. Okay. Um, well, it's, uh, I mean, it, let's start with its origins. I mean, it was originally designed to uh, exclude uh, immigrants and minorities from getting jobs. It was deliberately designed in its language to make that happen. And uh, not just um, not just minorities, but also people with uh, disabilities or just lower skilled workers or anything, any anyone they deemed undesirable, it was intended to lock them out of the system. It was intended to raise the wage to a certain amount where the only person that at the time people would deem acceptable is somebody that they had an idea that they could do the job better for some reason. And it tended to be kind of like racially biased in a sense because of just, I mean, the sentiment of when it was made. I mean, that just, but it was uh, the same way Canada and the U.S. were at the time. I mean, you know, this country has racist origins and it's taken a long time to break out of that. And when this was implemented, it was implemented for those reasons. That's one of the reasons. Right. Um, I, I think just its origins is just something worth looking at. But uh, if you want to go into why I don't think it works now is uh, just kind of seeing it in practice. Right now, the percentage of people in the United States that live on minimum wage is like 2% of people. And I would actually, I expect that number to have gone up since uh, that I got that number. It's 2% it's currently that are living on minimum wage, but half of those are people 18 or younger. So the people who, uh, make it eyebrows, is this, is this so it's <laughs> I, I I'm a little I'm a little concerned by those stats because I, I remember you know like covering this this subject not too long ago I'm not I'm just I'm, I'm a little unsure about those stats but please continue yeah 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 no I might be I might be spouting some terrible stats like I told you before this I subscribe to these ideas but people can explain them much better than me um, I uh, yeah I, I from what I from what I've gathered is that yeah it's it's actually quite a low percentage and when you talk to like like I talk to people that are you know, just some of my viewers and stuff that are from Texas, they're, they're much younger than me. Not one of them is working for minimum wage. And I, uh, like the, the only people I really see working on minimum wage is like very, very new workers, right? Or um, people who were, uh, and, and specifically in places that haven't really changed the minimum wage. Because like I was saying, I expect it to be higher. Because here in Massachusetts, I know everybody's working on minimum wage, but they've raised it so damn high. How, right. how could you not? 
how could you not be living off like minimum wage at this point? It's hard to compete. Like it's, it's twice what it is in Texas right now, but none of them in Texas are really getting that. Like they're all working like for similar things. They're working for like $15 an hour, which cost of living gets raised when you raise the price of minimum wage. So I'm just looking around at these guys. They have houses at a young age. Some of them are married and stuff. And everyone I look around here is making the same amount only to have to live with their parents because they can't afford rent. Right. So there's also a lot of other extenuating like circumstances that would play into that. You know, the cost of living can change, you know, different parts of the country and job opportunities are going to be different in different parts of the country, so on and so forth. And yeah, I mean, we, we do see minimum wage being different through different parts of the country. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the one, the one question that I've always had about people who are more or less like against minimum wage is that sometimes the argument that I hear is, you know, if we, if we didn't have a minimum wage, there'd be more competition. Is, is, that, is that something that you feel as well? Um, I don't know if necessarily it provides more competition. It offers more room to provide competition because if the floor is at seven, well, then you can offer nine and that's competition. So yeah, like I could see more competition being offered from that, but that's not really what I'm going for. Um, I, I don't know. I, 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 yeah, I, I don't think I'd say that it offers more competition necessarily. I mean, maybe it opens the playing field for a little because if the ground floor is lower, that's, that's about the only way I could see that. Right. But I also, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I think the thing that I always hear also on top of the competition standpoint is that, you know, like if, oh, well, if you keep, you know, raising the minimum wage, well, then the price of goods and services is going to go up and then it's just a cyclical effect. Right. That's that's uh, essentially what I'm getting at. Yeah. Right. And the the pushback that I've always had is inflation happens regardless. Right. I mean, like the price of goods and services go up regardless, you know, because for instance, the minimum wage hasn't gone up around here in I mean, I think it's gone up less than 50 cents over the course of the last like eight years, but the price of living has gone up here dramatically. The price of housing has gone up here dramatically. The price of food has gone up here, you know, dramatically. Taxes are going up. So people's effective like take-home rate has gone down dramatically, even though wages have been stagnant in this particular area. And so this idea that inflation is going to happen if you raise the minimum wage doesn't always, you know, explain the entire picture where inflation will happen regardless, even the minimum wage doesn't go up. So shouldn't the federal government step in to kind of help people when wages are being stagnant? Well, inflation goes up for many different reasons. And I'm saying minimum wage raises it specifically locally. Like you can see it happen faster in the cost of living and the prices of stuff. Like, I mean, you just drive over the border, just, just go, just go. Uh, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in Massachusetts. I'll throw that out there. Right. You don't just go over the border things start getting cheaper. Like just, just, you can already see it in like other states just because of the way our, uh, not just our minimum wage, like obviously we have taxes and all these other things that go to it. There's so many more things that raise the prices of our goods. It's not like it's solely resting on the minimum wage. I'm just saying it's one of the factors that raises things. And so of course, yes, you're going to be, you're going to be dealing with that, um, you know, in uh, middle of the country and anywhere else. Right. But, um, that's also because we're all tied into the same federal system, which is making its own irresponsible decisions, like printing endless money. You know? Oh, the, the yeah. deficit, the deficit debate. I know we've had <laughs> this, we've had this conversation. It's, it's always, it's always a fun one, but you know, 
instead of i feel like the deficit debate could could honestly just like go in a circle i feel like the last time that we had that conversation it kind we didn't of get went anywhere <laughs> no it, it kind of went that way but yeah you know like i i think we've you know both kind of like set our piece a little bit about the minimum wage so i think the next mm. thing i want to ask you about is what are your thoughts on climate change legislation and basically do, do you think that the federal government should be stepping in as far as putting limitations on people companies both either what are your thoughts uh personally no i i don't think they should step in to do anything uh do i think climate change is real absolutely 100 percent. i mean uh the majority of scientists agree um and what what can we what can we do we've talked about carbon taxes and things like that you know me, me and you kind of decided that that's probably not the best solution but uh what to do to encourage people to do that um I'm not really sure what the answer is, but what I do know is one country taking upon itself to like tax the hell out of its citizens for their consumption, while other nations that, you know, sometimes we give federal funding to are not held to those standards at all. I don't understand what we're doing. It feels like you're just punishing one populace while the problem's still ongoing, like especially with those carbon taxes we're talking about. They just sell them back and forth to each other. It's the same amount of pollution. Somebody ends up with a tax write off and somebody ends up like, polluting just the same amount. Like it, it, I, I don't even know. It just uh, it doesn't really make sense to me. And also, I don't really think it's fair for, you know, the, the most of the northern hemisphere to have gone through its industrial age and then just to tell the southern hemisphere like tough luck no industrializing we're not polluting anymore like you just have to deal with whatever you got um i mean it yeah it, it seems unfair to those countries to not let them industrialize themselves what i think we should more focus on because it doesn't seem like every country is going to play ball is solutions um after that like building up infrastructure and ways to deal with these kind of things that are seem inevitable at this point you know i think we should put more of our focus into that rather than trying to put a band-aid to like slow down two degrees over 50 years when half the participants aren't even going to play ball you know you're bringing up you're bringing up a particular point that does make sense because yeah yes even if the united states does go to completely like carbon neutral we are effectively referring to 15% of global emissions. The United States is roughly creating about 15% of global emissions. So yes, if you're not able to get China, India, Brazil, other large nations to also do these things along with us, it just, it's gonna seem inevitably as if we're not truly making as big of a dent as necessary to overturn what has already been done globally. Yeah. However, with that being said, given the fact that our nation is in a unique position that a lot of other countries do more or less take their leads from us, do you not think that it's a good idea for us to set a standard here? I know that you don't like the idea of carbon taxes, but for instance, the Green New Deal is something that's been obviously talked about ad nauseum. I mean, mostly what it is just a framework for the government to just put mass mobilization into uh, putting in new electrical grids into reformatting buildings to making new investments in clean energy, so on and so forth, divesting from fossil fuels. Do you see any value in the federal government doing something like that? I personally, just to put the record out there, I personally do. I did a whole episode on it. But just, you know, I'm asking you personally, how do you feel about it? If they would uh, do that, but um, 
the number one polluter right now is our military and they don't seem like they want to slow that down. It seems like half the amount of money we give them is just going to go do that. And that's just going to pollute more. So I don't believe them when they say they're going to do that. None of their actions have proven they're going to make the attempts that they say they're going to, they're like, give us the money now and you'll see the results later. And I have yet to see any results or even an attempt at them. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I can understand that. I appreciate you giving me your thoughts on that. I, I think, you know, speaking about the military though, you know, this episode will be debuting on September 13th. So we're two days removed from the 20th. I, guess, I, 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 wouldn't, I don't want to call it anniversary. That, that seems like a terrible word to attach yeah. to it. But the 20th year since 9-11. Yeah. And, you know, we're recording this episode before that date. So I'm assuming ahead of time that we made good on our promise and that Joe Biden got the troops out of Afghanistan like he said he would. So... Let's just, since, you know, like we're recording this ahead of time, we're not sure exactly if that actually happened or not, but let's just say that that is what happened. Like, what are your thoughts on all that? Um, are, are you happy if we did get the troops out? Um, as a guy who, you know, slightly sits on the right, um, and I think Republicans and Democrats are the same guys, I will wholeheartedly go out there and clap at every Republican that Joe Biden is a better president if he actually stands by this promise. <laughs> I don't know if he will. Um, and then additionally, though, like Trump was like, let's get out by May. And he's like, no, I'll move the date. So it's me. And like, I'm like, all right. Like from what I've, from what I've heard, like gathered, we're kind of already the hell out of there. And it's all right. just symbolic at this point. Especially with the date. I mean, come on. The original one was 9-11. That was a little too nail on the head. So yeah. Move back to August 31st, you know, because we need a few days to get them out of there, even though they're all pretty much gone. Um, yeah, right, so I right. mean, I, I've heard, I've heard it's pretty much in the direction of it, it's happening. So, yeah, good on Joe Biden. Uh, you only got six more to go, bud. Six more to go. Six other oh, countries. Yeah, yeah, we're mean? in a lot of different countries right now. Yeah, yeah, we're uh, the, from my perspective. I mean, Congress hasn't approved any of them, so call them what you want. We're in seven wars. Yeah, what countries well, are though off the off top of your head? Uh, what was it? Uh, Syria, Iraq, um, Libya. Uh, I think we're doing stuff in Somalia. Um, I mean, we're aiding Saudi Arabia's efforts in Yemen. I don't know if we're in there. Uh, I don't know. I need a map. It's, it's six, man. We should only have a, one Vietnam or none. <laughs> it's just like, what the hell is going on? Like, there's, there's, there's a lot. Yeah. I, I, I mean, yeah, we're, we're all over the desert right now. Just kind of messing with things. I mean, a, a lot of people don't like to talk about this, but you know, we're on the subject of 9-11. Um, probably gonna lose a lot of points from maybe all sides from this, but uh, we were poking around in the desert a long time before they came here, funding these terrorist organizations to go mess with Russia. We made our own problems with a promise from these people. Osama bin Laden's like, coming for you next. You're just as bad. Thanks for the money. Like, we made our own problems. And Never let a good problem go to waste. I'm not surprised we're over there for 20 years, continuing to make this ridiculous in military industrial complex, all this money. For what? Like, tell me why are we in Afghanistan? What was it? What, what are we doing there? Was it, was it to go, um, you know, disrupt these organizations that were building up under Osama bin Laden? Well, he's gone. I mean- he's Been gone for a decade. Yeah, about half the time. So what have we been over there for? <laughs> it's a great question. There was a piece that came out, I believe, out of the out of the New York Times, or maybe it was the Washington Post, but it was, I want to say, just at the end of this past year, where was it the Pentagon basically, you know, like uh, admitted that 
our operations over there have not been going anywhere close to as well as they were being reported so. And that basically the Pentagon was just continuing to tell people that things were going better than they actually were. I'm not surprised to hear something like that. But, you know, I'm just glad that our appetite as a nation has dwindled for wanting to be in these conflicts. I'm glad that we're all kind of coming to the same place in our minds where we all know that it's time for this to be done. And it really also upsets me. I'm I'm not sure where we're at at this, you know, at this point when this episode comes out, but hearing people now having these interventionist type talks when it comes to places like Cuba or Haiti, and it it just feels like it's a never ending cycle. I'm just so tired of the U.S. talking about going into another country and it seems like that's maybe a place where we have found some common ground here. Dude, forget about invading Cuba. Free Cuba. Hashtag free Cuba, just like Brittany. Freaking, <laughs> seriously, this embargo has been going on forever. Like, how can you really criticize their system? Like, I'm obviously not pro-socialism, communism, any of that. Whatever they're doing over there, let them run their experiment. Were you scared it's going to work? Like, <laughs> That's an even playing field of ideas out there and let them do them because we've done nothing but undermine them since their inception. And uh, yeah, I I, give them a chance to uh, fail on their own. I believe they'll do it. (laughs) You know, one of the the last things I want to ask you as we're closing out, I'm sorry, (laughs) that was kind of funny. Um, If you could just, I guess, in a a closing way, you know, someone's going to come over to your podcast and maybe they're interested in hearing more about uh, your feelings, you know, especially in related to politics, because, you know, we just spent this whole time talking about politics. What would you say is the foundation of your political beliefs that more or less like sculpts your feelings towards, you know, your ideology? Um, You do not speak for me. No one speaks for me. I speak for myself. That's, I mean, that's kind of the core of it. I, uh, I don't need, whether it be a, a king in a castle telling me what to do, or if there's three of us in a room and two people decided I'm wrong, they get to tell me what to do. My, my core values come from within, and I, I, I don't need somebody else telling me how to run my life. It's, uh, yeah, I just, just, I speak for myself. That's, that's pretty much it. That's, okay. that's the core of it. And everything else from there is just... Uh, just how you can and to, uh, you know, implement that in your life. That's, that's about it. All right. Well, thank you, Tom. I appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Can you tell everyone where they can find you, social media, your podcast, where can they get a hold of you? You will find me at Winner Gets Nothing on all your podcast things. Not on YouTube because there's no video. We'll work on that. Um, you can find me at WGN on Twitter. Or um, Sorry. You can find me on Twitter at WGN Podcast. And uh, if you're looking for politics, though, I did have 25 episodes of a political channel. I, I know we only talk politics here because that's what me and you do. But um, no, they, we, we tried to scrub them. We actually, we try to keep them out. Oh, except little teaser for my newest episode coming out. We did do one thing in politics, which like I said, we try to stay away from now. We did the political compass and we tried to make hell world. And guess where we landed? Right between Trump and Obama. We didn't do it on purpose. <laughs> we just tried to pick the worst answers. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, real cute place. Okay. It, it looks like Saudi Arabia on the map, but uh, I don't know what that's about. <laughs> okay. All right, Tom. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. For everyone who's interested, I'll have some links in the description for uh, being able to get a hold of the Winner Gets Nothing podcast. For everyone else, we'll be right back after this quick break for my final thoughts of the day. Stay tuned. 
Welcome back from the break, everyone. Thank you for sticking with me through this episode of Independent Thought. I want to first thank my guest. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Everyone should go check out the Winner Gets Nothing podcast. Tom, you are definitely appreciated. I hope to have you back on the podcast in the future. I will probably have you on a panel here pretty soon. You know, just uh, just keep your DMs open. You know, I'll probably be coming after you for for uh, an upcoming YouTube panel episode. But with all that being said, if you liked this episode and you have not already, please go ahead and hit that subscribe button and turn on the notifications. You know, I, I didn't think I'd have to ask people to turn on notifications because I figured if you subscribed, certain uh, certain platforms would just notify you when new episodes come out but spotify most definitely does not uh you have to hit their little bell or else you know forget about it uh apple normally will but for whatever reason i've been having some issues with them recently so that's kind of a hit or miss thing so uh yes make sure your notifications are turned on if you are listening to this right now as far as what's coming into the future for the podcast uh, there is a link in my description for my YouTube channel. Go ahead and hit subscribe on my YouTube channel because I'm going to be having quite a few different YouTube exclusives coming in the next few months. Uh, they're going to be episodes that will not be on the audio version of this podcast. They will only be on YouTube. And I think you don't want to miss them. I can't tell you exactly what they're going to be just yet, but I will be updating you in future episodes here, but there will be several of them. So make sure that you are subscribed to the YouTube channel. Now, to close out this episode, I kind of want to just touch on a couple different things coming from my first segment. I didn't mention this in the first segment, but I, I want to be very, very clear about one thing in particular. While I do feel there is a lot of negatives in regards to everything that our country has done since 9-11, I don't want that to discount the service that service members gave to the country. Just because our country has done things that are wrong does not mean that your service to the country was wrong or that it was in vain somehow. I feel as though, especially, especially young people who enlisted like right out of high school or, you know, like right after high school. I mean, people who do that, do that with the noblest of intentions. They truly are trying to protect the country. They're trying to protect their family. They're fighting for what they believe, you know, like what they believe in. They are making potentially the ultimate sacrifice to protect everyone around them. Uh, that is one of the noblest things that you possibly could do is to sign up for what could be maybe the last thing that you ever do in an effort to protect everyone you've ever cared about. That's noble. That's honorable. And in no way, shape or form is me criticizing our government or the leadership in our military an indictment on you or, you know, or, or any person who served, I don't want people to think that, that, that attacking our leadership is attacking the people who were involved in the military. Those people were just trying to do what they thought was right. It's not their fault that they were led us that I believe, I personally believe that they were led astray. 
that I think that leadership time and time again did not care about the repercussions of the actions that they were asking our service members to, to go out and commit. They did not care about how long this conflict dragged on for. They did not care about how many people they asked to be in harm's way. They just did not care if they kept sending more and more of our fellow Americans to die in places they didn't need to die in, or if they asked them to take the lives of people whose lives they didn't have to take. That's not your fault. That's not anyone's fault who was involved with that. Now the, the blame rides solely, rides solely on the shoulders of the people who were giving the orders. That's how I see this. And, and this story has bothered me immensely because throughout most of the month of August, I sat there and watched the media go absolutely just relentless attacking Joe Biden for withdrawing from Iraq, for, from Afghanistan, just relentlessly, just over and over and over and over again. And not only that, but it was just like piece after piece after piece about how terrible the Taliban was, as if this was breaking news, as if this wasn't always who the Taliban was, as if this was some revelation that they acted this way, that they had these beliefs, that they were who they, you know, like who they were. So I understand that it's a little different because they were taking over the country at this moment in time. But truthfully, it would have been a lot more bearable to take if the media had been this consistent with all of the atrocities that had been happening in the Middle East, all of them, including our own. But it wasn't. It was not whatsoever. Obviously, the repression of women in Afghanistan is worth talking about. Obviously, U.S. service members being killed in a bombing at an airport is worth talking about. But why aren't the lives of the hundreds of thousands of civilians who died over there, why wasn't that worth talking about? Why didn't their lives matter? Why is it that we as Americans seem to prioritize our lives over everyone else's lives? As if because we were born on dirt in this part of the world, we somehow have more value than people who were born on dirt in other parts of the world. That much, I just do not understand. And so I just, I, I will, like I said, during the first segment, I will never forgive our country for what they've done to the people of that region. We have probably created more people who are willing to create acts of terror than there ever were before we ever stepped foot over there two decades ago. And who knows what kind of repercussions that will come with in the future. Hopefully there won't be any, but I don't know. It, it, it's, it's a hard thing to think about. Cause I think, you know, for instance, if a radical group like the KKK went into China and attacked them and then China afterwards decided that they were going to carry out random drone strikes here in America on any target they deemed relevant, even though it didn't have to be any kind of militant, militant target. 
and they did that for 20 years straight, I bet by the time that they were done, there'd be a lot of anti-China sentiment in our country. It, it, it would just be natural. And I, I just can't even imagine what kind of history we've left in Afghanistan after everything that we've done, in Iraq after everything that we've done. I just, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. I'm not sure that we'll know in the, in the not too distant future, but all I have to say is that, you know, as I'm closing out this episode, I hope that everyone will take a broader look at what our true legacy is when it comes to this war in the Middle East, because it's worth telling. And in a really strange way, this is actually, you know, a very similar conversation to the conversation that I had with everyone in the second episode of this season when I talked about critical race theory. Because during that episode, it was we, the one of the things that was brought up was maybe, you know, like it's patriotic to only talk about the good parts of our history. And the reply to that was, well, let's just tell the whole picture and, you know, let people make up what they will about the country as a whole once they know everything that we've done. I think that logic still applies, especially with this. I think people of this country should know everything that we've done over in the Middle East, because I don't think that they really do. I don't think that most people know about our drone strike policy. I don't think that they know how many people that we've killed. Maybe they should know. Maybe we should talk about it. If you enjoyed this episode, please go ahead and share this on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Thank you so much for being here. See you next time.